Well, good morning once again. I hope today's message will offer y'all some encouragement and comfort, but I also hope that you can learn a few things and specifically come to understand a little bit better the world and the time in which Jesus lived. This morning, we're going to turn our attention to the gospel according to John, specifically chapter 5, verses 1 through 17. And so feel free to follow along in your Bibles or devices, but the text will also be on the screen as we go through this. You know, as, as an Adventist, I often am asked different questions about the Sabbath and what, what, what does that look like? How, do, how does that work? Uh, just, just a couple of weeks ago, I had a pretty in-depth conversation about the Sabbath, right, Nemo? <laughs> um, and it, it comes up a lot and also specifically the question, what does it mean to do good on the Sabbath? What, what does that practically look like? And I've often answered Look at the kind of things that Jesus did on the Sabbath. Go and do likewise. So now join me as we take a little journey to a Sabbath day in first century Jerusalem. John 5, verse 1. After this, there is a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So while a a Jewish feast is mentioned, it's not specified which one. And this was not Jesus's primary focus for returning to the city. As we will see later, the focus of this whole story is on the seventh-day Sabbath rather than any particular feast. Verse 2, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda, having five porches. Now, there is quite good archaeological evidence for the existence of this pool, exactly as it's described. And a Qumran scroll, which was found amongst all those scrolls that we refer to as the Dead Sea Scrolls, it attests to the name of this pool. But Scholars do not agree on the exact location of Bethesda, though many favor a site under St. Anne's Monastery in Jerusalem, which is just northeast of the temple. Public baths were standard in Greco-Roman cities, and people often congregated there. These pools were quite large, sometimes as long as a football field and as deep as 20 feet. And this particular site had twin pools surrounded by four porches and another one, a fifth porch, going down the middle that separated these two pools. And archaeologists believe that this might have been a a, a gender divide. Verse 3, in these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, Lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. Now, this particular site was later used as a pagan healing shrine. 
in antiquity, there was a tendency to reuse older shrines. So the Jewish community in Jesus's day probably came to view this pool as a place of mystical healing too. It is very possible that this shrine and pool were connected with the worship of Asclepius, a deity renowned for healing powers. And the Jewish temple authorities, they would not have approved, obviously, but just as today, the popular religion of the masses often tend to ignore religious contradictions that may seem clear to the more learned religious leaders. Now, there are numerous scholarly writings and debates concerning this next verse. Verse four, it reads, for an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now, this verse may not have been originally written by John, but was most likely added later a scribe who was familiar with the tradition of healing at Bethesda. And that is why this verse is missing in all of the best manuscripts. And so if, if you have your Bibles out, if you check in your Bible, there might be some, some footnotes connected with this verse talking about that. This text was probably added to help make better sense of and add context to verse 7, which we'll look at in a few minutes, as, to, as opposed to teaching some new theology here. I mean, does a, a first-come, first-served basis line up with the way that we typically see God working miracles in Scripture? I mean, I, I don't really see that. God's just sort of like, hey, whoever's the strongest and the fastest, you'll get your prayers answered. That, that's not how God tends to work. So verse five, now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. 38 years. It is, it is a long time. Ancient reports of healing often specified how long that person had been sick in order to then emphasize the greatness of the healer's cure, whoever that healer might be. This particular man had probably tried it all, gone to every doctor, tried every possible cure. Nothing had worked. 38 years. And this passage is going to go on and show Jesus as um, being much greater than any of the doctors around, any of the healing elements that were used during this time. And while the fact that the length of time this man suffered is shared may simply be a detail of authenticity, there could also be a symbolic nature to this number. We see the same amount of time, 38 years, shared in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 2, 14, it says, and the time we took to cross from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the valley of the Zered was 38 years until all the generation of the men of war was consumed from the midst of the camp, just as the Lord had sworn to them. So this verse uses 38 years to measure a generation. 
a generation. The irony here is that one who has suffered for a lifetime, a generation, is about to find wholeness in an instant on the Sabbath. If the religious leaders had their way, he should have waited a little bit longer, waited for the sun to go down, waited for the Sabbath to end, but Jesus feels this man has suffered long enough. John 5, verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition, as Lucy said, a long time, right? He said to him, do you want to be made well? Jesus sees this man and has compassion on him. The man had been sick longer than many people in in antiquity even lived. He was sick, as we just saw in Deuteronomy, for about as long as the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness. Now, this question here that Jesus asked, it might seem a bit silly to us. Of course this man wants to be made well, right? Why else would he be at this pool? But Jesus wants to give this man an opportunity to really think about what will take place if he is indeed healed. I believe the reason Jesus examines the paralytic man in this way is because this man has survived as a beggar for years. But that will change once he's healed. His current livelihood, begging, will be stripped away from him because no one wants to give money to a healthy man. It's as if Jesus is asking, are you ready? Are you sure that you're ready for the new responsibilities that will come if you are healed? Verse seven, the sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. This man opens up to Jesus. He makes himself vulnerable. He admits that he is alone. He admits that he is friendless, possibly admitting that he feels shut out by God's mercy. When the waters were stirred, those who were stronger than him or who had companions, had friends there, were able to help their friends get to the water before him. And he would see this over and over, day after day, month after month, year after year. Can you imagine how down and out, defeated, Hopeless he must have felt. All the anxiety that came by waiting for the water to move and then the eventual disappointment at once again being beaten to his desired destination. But Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. 
It's interesting here that Jesus does not ask the paralytic man to exercise some sort of faith in him. He simply just says, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Without any questioning, the man obeys the words of Jesus. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. You notice that that phrase keeps coming up. The, The writer here wants us to remember what day it is. This man latched onto the hope in Jesus's words and, and all of a sudden, something that had not happened in 38 years took place within his body. The muscles responded to his brain's urging. He springs to his feet and he basks in this miracle of God. He believed Christ's words, acted upon them, and was healed. Amen. I know we have a lot of guests here. Um, That alarm that you hear, it goes off every week at 12 o'clock. They're just testing the tornado siren. (laughs) Just to ease some of those anxieties. So if if we take this story and we make a life application, I, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we can admit that we are just like this man. We are just like this man. We all need spiritual healing. And we can receive it by faith. Over and over, sin has done its best to separate us from God, giving us palsied souls and a paralyzed spiritual life. On our own, we are no more capable of living a holy life than was the paralytic man able to make it to the pool on his own, in his condition. We may try, but if we are trying on our own, we are trying in vain. I wonder if this was the same reason that Paul cried out in Romans 7, 24, O wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? When we are struggling and feeling down, let us look up and grab the Savior's outstretched hands as he tenderly says, do you want to be made whole? Do you want to be made well? He calls us to arise in spiritual health and to bask in the peace that surpasses all understanding. We shouldn't wait until we feel well to accept it. We should believe it and experience the power through faith right now, right when we ask. Put your belief in his word and accept what he offers. He will impart life to our soul and break whatever chains those are that bind us. John 5.10, the Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. 
Now, since Jesus and this man were themselves Jewish, these quote-unquote Jews being spoken of here are clearly some sort of opposition group, most likely the religious leaders. They show no interest at all whatsoever in the miracle and instead can only focus on the law, which they feel this man is breaking. And I'm sure in his excitement, the the man had probably forgotten that it was the Sabbath. And he was surprised with, with the coldness that he is met with from these religious leaders. The folk who were supposed to be representing God. He answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. He knew the laws, but clearly he felt no condemnation by obeying the command of the one who had such power from God. Many teachers in these days also forbade minor cures on the Sabbath, a.k.a. physicians' cures that were not necessary to save a life. This argument should be irrelevant, considering the fact that Jesus acts in God's name with a miracle rather than a simple medical cure, but law is often argued by analogy. These particular religious leaders apparently reasoned that Jesus's cure was just like any physician's cure. But how they were wrong. John 5, 12, then they asked him, who is the man who said you take up your bed and walk? They wanted to know who this was that asked him to break their Sabbath rules. The man didn't know. He didn't know. And I'm sure that these rulers, they knew exactly who had done this for the man, but they wanted hard proof so they could label Jesus as a Sabbath breaker. The Jewish leaders had perverted the law so much to the point where it had become a yoke of bondage. To them, the Sabbath was no longer a gift and a delight, but instead it had become a curse and a burden. Verse 13, but the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. And then after this verse, we we get a, a little bit of a time jump. Verse 14, it says, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. I love how Jesus, knowing that this healed man had been accosted by the religious folk, and so he went and sought him out in the temple. As was customary, the man would have gone to the temple for a sin offering and a thank offering. After this healing that he was attributing to God. And with his words, Jesus reminds this man that mercy and grace that were extended to him were not an excuse 
to pursue a life of sin. While his paralysis was not a punishment from God, as we are told in chapter 9, verse 3, there are grievous consequences that do come about from sin. Jesus' hope for this man was to see him finally take hold of the life that God had in store for him and leave behind all the pain and all the suffering that he had experienced thus far. 38 years. The man departed, (laughs) and he told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Now, Clearly, I think maybe this man was a little bit naive. Maybe he didn't realize that these Jews wanted to know who healed him because they were out to get him. Um, but, But he went, he informed them of who it was that had healed him. And then this next verse, this is that truly heartbreaking verse in this story. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Some of you need to hear this today. There will always be legalists who want to judge and accuse you for doing good on the Sabbath. Let me read a little bit from a tremendous book called The Desire of Ages by Ellen White, because I I don't think that I could reword this any better myself. This is from the chapter entitled Bethesda and the Sanhedrin. Notwithstanding their efforts to counteract his work, Christ was gaining, even in Jerusalem, an influence over the people greater than their own. Multitudes who were not interested in the harangues of the rabbis were attracted by his teaching. They could understand his words, and their hearts were warmed and comforted. He spoke of God not as an avenging judge, but as a tender father. And he revealed the image of God as mirrored in himself. His words were like balm to the wounded spirit. Both his words, by his words and by his works of mercy, he was breaking the oppressive power of the old traditions and man-made commandments and presenting the love of God in its exhaustless fullness. The people were gathering to Christ. The sympathetic hearts of the multitude accepted lessons of love and benevolence and preference to the rigid ceremonies required by the priests. If the priests and rabbis had not interposed, his teaching would have wrought such a reformation as this world has never experienced. But in order to maintain their own power, these leaders determined to break down the influence of Jesus. Whoever dared to condemn the rabbinical requirements or attempt to lighten the burdens they had brought upon the people was regarded as guilty, not only of blasphemy, but of treason. On this ground, the rabbis hoped to excite suspicion of Christ. You see, the religious leaders, they claimed that Jesus was trampling on the Sabbath. 
But in fact, he was exalting and elevating it. In Isaiah 42, we find a messianic prophecy that states, he will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. You see, Jesus came to justify truth. The truth about the Sabbath had been lost and buried under man-made rules and legalism. Jesus decided that he would take opportunities during his earthly ministry to free the Sabbath from the burdensome requirements and regulations that men had used to turn it into a curse. And this is why I believe he chose to heal this paralytic man on the Sabbath. This is why he told him to take up his bed and walk. This is why he came to the temple to confront the complainers and the religious hypocrites, or the people I I like to call the, the Sabbath police. He could have healed this man on any other day, He could have told this man to leave his bed right where it was. But this would not have fulfilled his desired purposes. This was truly one of those kill two birds with one stone situations. He could not only heal this man, but he could also use this as a teaching opportunity to help take away the burden that so many Jews carried on a weekly basis when it came to the Sabbath. He sought to denounce the restrictions that the religious leaders had placed on the Sabbath and declare their rules, their traditions, null and void. Jesus responds to those Sabbath police by saying, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Jesus stated that the work of relieving the afflicted was not only in harmony with the Sabbath, but was an integral part of the Sabbath. Jesus reasons by analogy that what is right for God in sustaining his creation is also right for himself. Jesus' words here rejected the view that, that God is just only, uh, only occasionally in tune with the needs of his creation, the needs of humanity. At the same time, it builds on the theme of Sabbath observance. God may have rested on the seventh day, but he does not cease from engagement with the world and in his judgment of it. And with that said, I'd like to read just one one last paragraph from the same chapter of The Desire of Ages. The demands upon God are even greater upon the Sabbath than upon other days. His people then leave their usual employment and spend the time in meditation and worship. They ask more favors of him on the Sabbath than upon other days. They demand his special attention. They crave his choicest blessings. God does not wait for the Sabbath to pass before he grants these requests. Heaven's work never ceases, and men should never rest from doing good. 
coup. So in closing, I want to ask a couple questions. The first one, do you, dear friend, do you feel afflicted? Do you feel afflicted right now? Take your rest in Jesus. And lay hold of the bountiful blessings God wants to pour out into your life today. Today is a great opportunity to to bask in prayer, to study the Bible, to spend time with friends and family, to be rejuvenated. Take time to experience and enjoy the relational aspect of the Sabbath gift, both with God and with other people. Taste the Sabbath blessing and see that it is good. My second question is, do you know someone else who is afflicted? Do you know someone else who is afflicted right now? Whether it be physical, emotional, or spiritual, the Sabbath is a great opportunity to pull alongside them to do as the Bible commands of Christians to bear one another's burdens and let them experience the blessings of the Sabbath gift. As Jesus preached, we must remember, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. As Adventist pastor Tara J. Vincross wrote in her fantastic book, deeper calling. Through the Sabbath, God is teaching the people again what it means to be human, what it means to be God's children. This is how you live, rest and then work. Your value isn't based on what you do, but that you belong to and are loved by God. So go in peace. Go do good in the name of your Lord and Savior. Yes, even on the Sabbath. Yes, especially on the Sabbath. And now I want to invite Heather Preston to come forward to stand at the foot of the steps as our elder in charge. I'm going to have the benediction. And after I have the benediction, you who wish can be dismissed. But I'm also going to step down here as well after that. And and we just want to extend the invitation. If there's anybody here that has any special needs, any special requests, any special burdens, maybe you have a tremendous praise that you just want to share. We want to give you that opportunity. Come talk to us. We'd love to hear from you, and we'd love to pray with you and lift your petitions, lift your praises up to God's throne of grace. Let us pray. Our loving, gracious, heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for the many blessings that you give to us. And we especially thank you for the Sabbath blessing, this time when we can just sort of slow down, take a break, rest, reconnect with you, with others, Lord, it's a tremendous day, a tremendous opportunity to do good 
for those that have maybe never experienced the Sabbath blessing, never experienced what it means to, to know that they are loved by God, that they are loved by others, that there are people out there who wanna live like Jesus and help them bear their burdens. Lord, I pray that you would give us opportunities to be able to be Christ's hands and feet in this world. And Lord, for those who are here that know you, that have experienced Sabbath blessings, that have experienced the blessings that you pour out, but Lord, for whatever reason, right now in this moment in their life experience, they feel afflicted. Lord, I lift them up and give them to you. I pray that you would surround them with people that would love them, comfort them, encourage them. And I pray that you would place this truth, the conviction of this truth in their heart, that you will never leave them nor forsake them. That you are there, that you hear them, that you see what they're going through. Lord, I pray that they would feel a need to cry out to you and believe in faith that you will answer and respond. Lord, we give ourselves to you and we invite your spirit into our lives. Fill us, use us. And Lord, we believe that there is power in this prayer because we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen.